Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the D Sweet Nation podcast. Um, today is 9 11, September 11, 2021. Uh, 20th anniversary of uh, the 9 11 attacks in New York City. Um, as always, I'm Dan Hutchinson. I'm Ray Dog. And today I'm Randall W. Scott the Third. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me, you guys. We have an uh, Emmy Award winner here. I know Randy isn't modest, but he's an Emmy Award winner. Been at uh, Davison High School for well about twenty years now. This is my twentieth year there. Yep. yep. Uh, DTV Studio, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Randy. Um, yeah, you know, uh, grew up on the east side with me and Ray here in Flint, um, and uh, uh, you know, known him for a very long time, and he's one of the best guys in the world, by the way, in case you didn't know. Um, Told you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, man, just uh, did that and got into television at a, at a young age, worked the TV news circuit for a long time, and then uh, eventually ended up teaching uh, television to, to students at a high school and in, at Davidson there, and that's been, man, that's been an awesome experience the whole time. But, yeah. How, how, uh, how have you been doing for, like, the last year and a half, like, through the pandemic? Yeah, it's been different. It's been different, man. Scary at times and boring at times and just different. You know, even now today, I mean, like uh, this week, the, you know, we, we started the school year off. Davidson starts a little earlier, so we started the school off and no mask. It felt like normal for a minute. And then now everyone's back in masks and they're quarantining kids again. And boy, it's like, man, it's just over. And it's it, we're repeating everything from last year. It's feeling feeling that way. Uh, one more question before we get into our uh, episode today. Were you inside the school a couple of days ago when that trouble was happening up there? Yeah. Did, did anybody get hurt or Yeah, anything? no, it was a total false call, but okay. it was very scary at the moment. I mean, um, the administrators did all the right stuff, man. You, you, the report of a, uh, of a gun in the school, you have to do certain things. Mm. You know, if you don't do those things and somebody gets shot, you're in trouble. Sure. This time the, the report was false. It was an erroneous report. It wasn't, it wasn't malicious. Somebody thought they saw a gun, you know. And and then boom, total lockdown. I mean, this is what happened, Ray. I'll just tell you this, and I don't know how much of this stuff got out, but um, uh, at one point, I mean, we're we're locked down in our class. Uh, a police officer comes in. He's got the you know the AR fifteen. He's got the assault rifle. He comes in. Put your hands up. You know, he wasn't pointing the gun at us, but he was looking for a suspect. So he he came in, and 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 we're like, whoa! Everybody in the class puts their hands up. He's scouting, looking around, you know, and he goes in the next room and he finds the kid he was looking for. And it was all false. You know what I mean? It, it was it was a precaution because somebody thought they had saw something and it turns out it was absolutely nothing. But it was full, you know, just to see all the stuff we practiced and all the drills and the lockdowns in case it was real, mm-hmm. actually going to a place. It was different and it was different. But everybody was safe. And and I, I believe we learned a lot from that, you know, just, you know, just being in that experience, you know. Yeah. Now, uh, today's episode, Dan came up with a, with the nine eleven concept on the twentieth anniversary, which was a great idea. And today, we're just going to kind of each of the three of us are going to share our stories and talk about where we were and just circumstances on that day of September September eleventh, two thousand one. Now, since my story probably won't be as exciting as your guys is, okay? I guess I'll go first. So we could just kind of get it out of the way. You're a newsman back then. You were, you know, in the army, so that's obviously yeah. going to be very intriguing. Yeah, and we are we are going to touch on some sports too. After we, after we tell our stories, we're going to go into some of the some of the key sporting events that happened after the events of 9/11 and how sports helped to kind of take everybody's mind off what happened and you know all the unity and not only across the country but in the city of New York and all those key games and how sports kind of 
you know, kick back off after the events of 9-11 as well. Yes. So, okay. Now, my particular situation on that day, I was, let me see, three days shy of my 20, 24th birthday because my birthday's on the 14th. And I was working for Pinkerton Security at the time. Do you remember Pinkerton? Absolutely. They've changed their name so many times, I don't even know what their name is anymore. I know they still have a security system. But anyways. They busted my dad in the shop so many times. (laughs) (laughs) I was working at uh, uh, Flint Engine South on Van Slyke in Bristol. And what I remember about that night or morning, because I was a a third ship worker at the time. I I worked from midnight to 8. And then we had a lady that called in, as people did every day for Pinkerton. They call in every day. So I stayed over until noon, which eventually I stayed until four in the afternoon. I worked a double shift, basically. I, one thing I remember, it was super hot that day. In Flint, it was at least. It was hot as hell that day. And I was working at the truck gate at the time, and I had heard about the first plane hitting. Didn't really give that much thought. Just thought it was an accident. And then when, um, I can't remember, I think it was Princess, uh, Princess Jones was her name, Central Girl. She was an officer too. And she's the one that relayed the message that a second plane had hit. Okay, now now what we had to do at the plant as security officers, this is where it starts to get a little hairy here. <sighs> I remember that day, and then we had to do this for like another month. But the, the rest of that day, so this would have been, somewhere between like 9.30 and 10 o'clock in the morning, every truck that came in, we not only had to do our normal inspections of the truck, we had to like get under, like mechanics, okay? We had to look in the cab, look inside the glove box. We had to go under their truck, like crawl under there, look for things. And we had to go in the back of their trailers and look for, we had to like just interrogate everybody because that's what we were told to do. And Everybody that walked out of the plant, whether they're going to lunch, going to their car real quick or, you know, quick smoke break, whatever, we had to frisk and check everybody's purse, wallet. Um, We even had a situation where there was a whole bunch of workers that were outside all at the same time, and we weren't allowed to let them back in right yet. There was me, and I think there was like four or five of us, and everybody was, you know, it, it was hot. Everybody was confused, didn't know what was going on. Um, because at, let me see, after the fourth plane dropped in Pennsylvania, um, we didn't know what was going to happen in Flint, you know, is something going to happen in Flint, whatever, with all these plants here. But we had a whole bunch of people outside. They were cussing and getting ornery and a couple people threatened us. And there was, you know, like a hundred, 150 people out there. And it looked like they were going to ambush us, but thank God they didn't. But uh, we basically had to just, like, harass people the rest of the day, which we didn't want to do. But our our site coordinator told us, nobody gets in. You check everybody. You look under, do whatever, look in their car. We're looking cars in the parking lot. It was uh, just a hectic day. That's how my day went. And then, I, you know, I got home. I didn't really process the 9-11 stuff until the day after because I was so tired. I wanted to get that second shift over with. And uh, it was just, it was a madhouse there. Truck and bus, everywhere right there on Vance Lake. It was just, uh, it sounded like um, like Tiger Stadium, like when, like a roar of a stadium, like people outside and hollering. And uh, that's how my day went as a security guard. We had to 
check everybody's trucks, vehicles, pat them down, look in their purses. If they came back in, if they stepped out for five seconds, we had to do that process all over again. Yeah. That's what was pissing people off. Yeah. So, so that morning when you're, you're at work, were you, were you able to watch the news at all? Were you, able, were you in front of any t- kind of TVs? Were you listening to the radio? Like, were you, were you able to be present in the news broadcasts as this stuff was going on? Where I was at at the particular time when I heard about the, the planes hitting, the second plane in particular, I was inside of the truck gate. Now, this was 20 years ago. They don't, it's not like now because I was at that plant doing business like two months ago. And inside that truck plant, it looks like a, like a studio. Yeah, They got TVs in there, like screens like this in there, and they got to do all this in there. When I was working there, it was just a, a phone and um, our handheld games we played with. No, there was nothing in there. I couldn't watch it on the TV. But Princess, who I talked about earlier, she was. we had her on the phone the whole time, me and my buddy. Uh, it was Lennard Gooseby. We were just listening to her kind of give us the play-by-play because she was in the console area, and everybody else was watching on the TV. We just happened to be at a spot where there wasn't a TV. So we had to listen to her. You know, And then she's the one uh, live um, – when the Capitol building was hit, and then when the when they heard the plane went down in Pennsylvania, she was giving us play by play as it was going along. We didn't have it uh, screen in our truck gate at that time. We would now if we were working there now. But isn't it interesting just how the technology, like like kids that you know um, that weren't born at that time, they don't know. You couldn't just check your phone and see what was happening. Yeah, you had to be near a TV. You had to have someone relaying information. You know, and, and yeah, just that was interesting that you said that. And just interesting about having a security, being a security guard at that time. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, we had a job to do, but I did feel kind of, uh, speaking for myself, I felt a little bit bad because I honestly felt like I was harassing everybody. But that was, it was our job to harass everybody. And it was, uh, it was very uncomfortable because I'm not, you know, I've never, I'm not like a bully by nature and I don't like to harass people like just out of nowhere. Uh, it was, very uncomfortable. I felt like I was uns- I didn't feel safe while I was there. Um, we didn't know. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we and, and like at that time, we didn't know if there was going to be more planes like going to the uh, Chicago or different cities. Yeah, different mm-hmm. cities where there are other big monuments at. Yeah, uh, Detroit. You know, uh, Flint. You know, we didn't. We didn't know what was going to happen. So as a security officer, and I'm sure everybody else that was a security officer that day anywhere in the country probably had to go through the same kind of procedures it was on my part it was tough because i just i don't like to harass people yeah that's stuff like like randy was saying it man if that happened today in today's society with all the technology and twitter and instagram and all the social media you, you can plug in the very second something's happening it, it was a very different experience back then with like you said you you're having to get this news secondhand mm-hmm. not even be able to watch it on the news or watch it being broadcast anywhere you're like, you know, what's what was going through your mind? Like the, when somebody comes and tells you that, that, you know, planes flew into the World Trade Center. Like, what's the first thing that's going through your mind? When the first one hit, I uh, didn't really didn't have a feeling. The first one, I just figured it was an accident. There'd be some people dying. I mean, it was unfortunate. The second one, though, when I got note of the second one hitting, that's when I kind of felt a little uneasy um, because – Anybody with a half a brain knows when that second plane hit that it's a terrorist attack. And, uh, and, then, and then after the Washington, D.C. and Pennsylvania incident, you didn't know if this was going to go on all day or where they were heading. You just didn't know. Yeah. Total confusion. And uh, 
a very, very tough day. Yeah, man, it was a scary day. Randy, I, I, I think it's interesting our three different perspectives. So mm-hmm. I, I'd like you to go second because I think the, the events of how the events played out that day it kind of really correlates with our three different experiences, you know, with you being just someone who's at work getting the news secondhand from someone else. And I think Randy's going to be able to tell a story of like, you know, working for a news channel and, and kind of getting that information sort of before it got to you or us. Right. Like, and, and how things were going. So Randy, what, what was your experience? That so, day? yeah. So at the time I was working at, um, uh, WXYZ channel seven in Detroit and, um, and I was actually on vacation, and, and it was it was kind of a weird thing. So September 10th, I'm on vacation, and I'm I'm in Pennsylvania, and and I have one more day of vacation left. So I was off on the 11th the next day, right? And I was like, okay, you know, I'm with my best friend. I'm like, hey, do we want to go? You want to go to D.C. for the day or to go to New York for the day and then drive home? And we were we were making that decision whether we were going to go to D.C. or New York, not knowing anything was going to happen, you know. And, uh, and we were like, yeah, let's just drive home. So we'll have some day to rest. So we drove home, drove right through Pennsylvania, right through Shanksville, you know, and I get home and I, I wake up the next morning and, and I'm never up in the morning, which is the weirdest thing, right? So, like, I'm never up in the morning because I work second shift, you know, we're three to midnight. So I was like, whatever. And I, I wake up and then the TV's on and I'm, I'm looking at this plane in the, in the building and I'm like, whoa, you know, and that was kind of weird. And I actually was watching as the second plane hit, you know, when that yeah. came on, I was like, I'm getting chills right now just thinking about that moment. And, I'm, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, and I anger. I can't tell you the anger I felt right away, you know, um, and I'm thinking, okay, work's going to call me in. Everything's going to happen. So I, I'm calling work and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're so busy, right? I mean, you're talking about Detroit. Detroit has the, you know, um, once they started figuring out it was a terrorist attack, you know, Detroit is the, the second largest um, uh, Muslim population outside of the Middle East in the whole world, in the whole world, right? And so that was a big deal then. And you know, I just, I remember being angry and calling my dad. I never called my dad. Maybe it was like a protection thing. I don't know why, but like I called my dad and like, dude, what's happening here? But that was just it. But the anger, I remember literally punching my steering wheel as I'm, as, a, as I'm driving because I was so mad at what happened. And, um, and it's so my story really begins on the next day, right? So they didn't call me in the first day just because they were so busy, right? And, and, and so I drive to work the next day and my job the next day at the news station, they called everybody in that day. Everybody worked that day. They said, Randy, your job is to drive around Detroit and wait for retaliation attacks against Muslim population in Detroit. We think they're coming. There was, there was police reports. There was all kinds of reports. So they had me just driving randomly to any police call around Detroit thinking that somebody was going to retaliate against the Middle Eastern family or a church or, a, you know, a mosque, something like that in Detroit. So that was my job on the next day. And that was just, that was bewildering. And it was so, so quiet on September 12th, the next day in Detroit, nobody was working. No, the streets were empty. Like it was, it was, it was definitely bizarre. It was surreal actually, um, just to get that, you know, and to see that and, the, and to hear all the reports of what was happening that were false and not, you know, okay, they're shutting the border down. This is happening. This is happening. You know, all kinds of crazy things just, just coming in, you know, Oh, we heard shots fired in Dearborn. Go Randy, go, you know, and it, and it would be nothing, you know, but people were just so on edge that, that we were moving around everywhere, trying to look for stories and what was next. Like you said, the confusion, even for a news station, just mm-hmm. trying to cover everything. Right. And the fact that, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was low man on the total pole. So I'm driving around looking for attacks, right. Everybody else is at the stations and doing stuff. And so, that's just where it was, man. That's where, where we didn't know 
what the next thing was going to be. You know, were they going to blow up the tunnel to Canada? Were they going to do, you know, anything like that? Nobody knew. So. How, how did you feel about your own safety? Like when you were put on these missions out there? You know what? Never worried about it. It's, it's funny. It's funny. Like when you're working and, and um, I don't know, you just don't think, I think it just, you think you got a job to do. You got a mm-hmm. job to do. And honestly, it was so vacant out there and there was nobody on the streets I didn't feel threatened. You know, maybe if I would have got to a situation, you know, but there was no there was no mass panic. It, you know, it was funny. There was mass confusion, but there was no mass panic or anything like that, and there was no really bad events that I recall. I'm sure there was a few, you know what I mean? But, um, yeah, I, I never really felt threatened. I never. I, I guess I felt vulnerable, right, because, yeah. because you just, you've been attacked, right? You know, we've never felt that before. I think I felt vulnerable, and that's why I called my dad, really. So that's like some insight to that. But I never felt threatened, you know. I never, I never felt that. I didn't care, anyways. I would have went in there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, you know, from a soldier standpoint, I don't know what you were feeling, but I bet it's something similar. It's similar, but mm-hmm. a little bit different. So, was that how your next, like, say, couple weeks, months were like busy with that kind of work, like still on task, like driving around trying to, you know, cover these so-called events or covered covering nine eleven type. Or related events? I will tell you this the next day. Um, so after the 12th, so the, the next day, boy, one of the toughest, the most, it was a life-changing experience. My my job the second day is I was with my favorite reporter. His name was Ray Saya. And uh, and they say, Ray, you're going to go out. I just remember this. Like, you're going to go out to Garden City. And there's a, um, there's a mom out there. Her daughter was in the Trade Center. She has no idea if she's alive or dead. Because this is still early. They didn't know who was live or dead. And you're going to go talk to this mother. And I'm like, whoa, okay. You know, and, and in the news, you talk to people who lose people. You, you do that. And, and so we, we go over to her house, me and Ray, and we don't know. We're like, wow, we got to go do this, right? And we knock on her door. And the mother, she, she answers the door with a giant picture of her daughter. Like a giant, like a, I don't know if it was a senior picture or if it was a, I don't know, a giant portrait, right? She's got this giant picture of her daughter holding it. And she walks in and she's smiling at us. And she hugs us. And she says, I know my daughter is gone. I know this. But it's going to be okay. And she hugged both of us. And I'm like, I don't, I'm tearing up, you know, like we're tearing up with the mother. But the mother's so strong and so certain that it's, it's okay even though she's like, I know my daughter was in that building. I know she's not alive anymore. And turns out she wasn't alive anymore. But that was just that interview and that, that moment. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Man, man, I, that's got to be tough. Well, my story was, as you both know, um, as many of you know, I was uh, serving in the United States Army at the time of the 9-11 attacks. Um, stationed over in Hawaii. Now, being stationed in Hawaii, Hawaii is not a duty station, not a unit that gets deployed to a lot of active duty locations, right? Those are like, you know, the Fort, uh, the Fort Drums, the Fort Braggs, the Fort Campbells, Fort Hoods of the world. You know, they have different, you know, geographical coverages based on where the bases are in the, in the United States. But so we're in Hawaii and uh, we were right in the middle, I think on day seven of a 10 day field exercise. We're out. Uh, on a field exercise doing different things. And uh, we were doing some training in, uh, uh, at a range uh, where we practice like uh, urban tactical uh, stuff with like 
entering buildings, clearing rooms, stuff like that. I mean, we were, we were, our job was to be the enemy or another unit was like attacking us. So we just spent like a day and a half putting up Constantina wire and defenses around this whole little Mount city that we, we were at and uh normal day, you know, getting ready to get up, go to work and ready to, I think we were supposed to do our actual operation that night. Um, get up for breakfast at like 5 a.m., go down, eat breakfast, um, come back from eating chow and go back to like the little rooms we were kind of camping in, we were staying in, sleeping, you know, shaving, you know, getting dressed, packing up our stuff. And uh, back then we, we, we didn't have, you know, obviously we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have, you know, we had, some of the guys had like radios, you know, kind of like Walkman type radios where we could, AM, FM radios, we can listen to news stations. So we're, we're just sitting there after breakfast, and all of a sudden our, our squad leader comes up. It's like, hey, everybody get down down to this building, this room right now. I'm like, okay, what's going on? So we all gathered. It was a couple different units there, and this captain walks in. We had never seen him before. Very nicely, you know, clean everything. He obviously hadn't been in the field. So he sits us down, and he's like, hey, we don't, we don't know much of anything right now. We know that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. That's really all we know. We don't have any other information, right? So we're like all kind of in shock. But like you said, Ray, if our first our first thoughts were like, "Oh wow, this it, this has been an accident, right? A plane accidentally mm-hmm. flew into the World Trade Center." So we're like, we we immediately go back to our our bunk areas where we we're sleeping at. Everybody busted. If you have a radio, you got it out. You got it out, you put your headphones in, and you turn to a, a news station and start listening to the news. And then, obviously, it was like almost 15 minutes later, you know, the, the second plane hit the South Tower. And we're like, oh, shit, you know, like, this is this is not an accident. You know, this is not something that was an accident. This is, there, there's no way accidentally two planes fly into each tower of the World Trade Center. And it obviously was before the news of, you know, the plane you know, coming down the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania. So we're like, we, our, our minds start racing. Obviously, as a soldier, your, your mind starts to think about these things. Like this is, this is those, these moments when you join the military, you're like, okay, now I'm, I'm going to the shit, right? Like yeah. I'm with, and you're, you want to, right? When you hear stuff like mm-hmm. that. So we get called back down to the same room, same captains there. And uh, this time it's serious. Everybody's got a much more serious look on their face much more surreal kind of vibe in the room. And the captain's like, okay, well, if, if you have a radio, you've probably heard by now that the second plane is hit on the South Tower, the World Trade Center. And that we now know that this is a, a terrorist attack on the United States. So everybody go pack up your shit. We got to clean up all this Constantina wire and get the hell out of here and get back to base. So that's what we did. The next hour and a half, we cleaned up. Everything that we had just did, spent a day and a half doing, packed up our stuff, and I had never seen, it's kind of relatable to, to sports in a way where, like, you're getting ready for a big game, right? And your your coach, like Coach Ufinger, you know, just gave you this incredible locker room speech, or like, you're down three points at halftime or something, and you or. You know what I mean? You, you're getting ready to go. You're focused. You become ultra focused. And all of a sudden your mindset goes to like, okay, let's go get these fuckers. Right. This yeah. is, this is what we're here for. 
They attacked us. We're ready to go. Put me on a plane right now. Put a gun in my hand. Put me on a plane. Let's go. So you guys were angry too then when it settled in and stuff? It, it was, yeah, it was anger. But when you're in the military, you don't really, it's not really anger. Like, I'm so pissed off, right? It's, you have like a brief moment of anger and then it switches to, I'm coming to put a bullet in your head, right? Like, I'm coming to get you. Like, whoever's responsible for this, you just fucked up. Yeah, now right? it's a mission, right? It's that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, now Person, it's a mission. Yes. Yeah. Right. So we, uh, we pack everything up. We get on a uh, deuce and a half trucks back to the base. Now, this range is only a 15-minute drive from our base, right? It's, it's one road. It's kind of like a backcountry road. It's, it's on the base. Our, the, the base is right next to a mountain range, so it's like this private road. Nobody ever is really on it. Because it's, it's just mainly used for, you know, civilians drive on it too, but all our ranges are off this main road. So it's a 15-minute drive back to base. It took us over three hours to get back on base. Three hours. We're sitting parked in the road. Uh, we're sitting in the back of deuce and a half trucks, just like itching, antsy, right? And we got to wait like three hours uh, because they had shut the base down. They completely shut the base down. Any civilian that was working on the base, because we had civilians that worked at, like, the stores and the gas stations and the fast food places or whatever, they all had to go. You didn't have a military ID, you get, you had to go. And only military family have military IDs. You got to go. And anybody coming in, you like you said, Ray, everybody got searched. Every vehicle was stopped, searched, ID checked. And I'm not talking searched, I'm talking... You know, fully loaded weapons, mirrors going around every vehicle, looking in every crevice, checking every vehicle. Um, so we finally get on back on base, get back to our unit. Now, mind you, we just came out of the field. So a lot of us are, you know, dirty. We hadn't showered in seven days. Uh, so we had a formation. Our our uh, platoon or our, uh, our leadership tells us, okay, single guys, get upstairs. Get showered, wash your shit, pack your shit back up, and get ready to go. Married guys, go home, get a shower, pack your stuff, kiss your wives, and get back here. Right? So we we kind of went into this period of lockdown where we did like three days on, two days off, where even the married guys had to come and stay with us single guys in the barracks because we were on call. Like for three days, you just sat there and we're ready to go. And we didn't just sit there. We were doing like drills, going over procedures and, and things we might run into. And, you know, we weren't just sitting our asses. We were preparing. Um, so that's kind of how it went for the next couple weeks. And then uh, we got assigned to uh, do guard duty for Tripler Army Hospital on the island, the military hospital on the island. Um, so we went to the hospital and did kind of exactly that. We, we stayed there. We slept there. We pulled eight-hour shifts um, uh, guarding the hospital. Every, every vehicle that came in, we stopped them. You know, they had the whole, the, the, uh, what you call it? The serpentine barricades that people had to drive through. We stopped every car, check ID, check the vehicle. You know, we have fully loaded weapons, um, at a hospital, at a hospital, at the military hospital on the island, right? Triple army hospital is, if you ever seen the movie, the Pearl Harbor, it's a, it's a pink hospital. It's painted pink. 
So that, that hospital in Pearl Harbor that is like getting shot up there, all the nurses work at and stuff, that's Triple Army Hospital. Um, so we, we guarded that for a while and then, then eventually moved on to guarding another like uh, uh, housing unit there. Uh, it's like this huge military housing built in t- inside of like a, a big crater. Um, but we did that for a long time. We pulled guard duty. And it, like I said, Hawaii, we, we don't get shipped off just because it's the Middle East is not that area's responsibility. Yeah, you're more of a South Pacific kind of. Yeah. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pacific Rim, yeah. right? Yeah. Hawaii is responsible for Pacific Rim. So everybody was ready to go, you know, but, but uh, that was kind of our life after that, you know, pulling long guard duty shifts, you know, uh, checking cars, searching vehicles, that kind of thing. But everybody was ready to go. And it, it wasn't until I'd say almost, almost a year later. Um, and it's actually after I got out, I think it was like six months or so after I got out. Um, my unit actually got the, some people from my unit got shipped off shipped to Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, man, that's a, that's interesting stuff, man. Um, when that happened for me, now I'm speaking for myself personally, and I, I'm kind of glad that I'm kind of getting this off my chest, kind of put closure on it. I haven't really told anybody this before, but I remember it probably, I would have to say it lasted at least a couple years after the terrorist attacks. So I'll say probably two years. You know, I was 24 years old, young, um, not the most mature person ever. I had a big stereotype on every anybody that was Mideastern, you know, uh, when, when we found out who, who did this to us. My narrow-minded way of thinking back then was, you know, anybody that I come across that is Mideastern, you know, they're, they're probably related to terrorists. And, you know, I was thinking like, like all of them are like that, which is stupid to think. You know, I was young, regrettable, um, but... I did learn from it though, because I don't, I don't judge people on nationalities like that anymore. Like I did mid Eastern people, you know, I'm a character guy. If you got low character, I can't, I can't do anything with you. But, uh, I was young, not making excuses or nothing, but I hate the fact that I was like that. Okay. Because look, I'm a full blooded Mexican guy, tattoos, you know, kind of a big guy. That doesn't mean that I work for the cartel. That doesn't mean cartel members are in my family. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, that's that's something I just wanted to get off my chest. That's that's the way it was for a couple of years. That was my way of thinking. That was my stereotype. It was stupid, but it's the way it was for me. But I definitely not like that anymore with any kind of people. Yeah, and you know what? You're not the only one that had a stereotype. You know, there was so many going on, and the fact that you were able to move past it, you know, it's just that's what you do. You get better. You learn. You get yeah. better, right? So. Yeah, but that was that was it. I mean, like you said, I, I was driving around the Middle Eastern neighborhoods because they thought there was going to be retaliation, which, you know, like I said, there were incidents, but nothing major. You know what I mean? So yeah. we were we were able to, you know, get away from that, at least a lot of that hating, you know, um, somewhat. Obviously, there's still a lot of hate left. But <laughs> And remember how unified our country was at that time. Everybody. Not, yeah. not this group versus this group like it is now. Look how unified we were then sticking together for for quite a while would you guys agree with that yeah absolutely and and that leads us right into that you know us as sports fans leading into you know when when, when the events of 9-11 happened you know sports were shut down mm-hmm. right sports yep. were shut down and i think it was six days at the at the time that the uh 
Major League Baseball season was still going on, about to go into the playoffs. Um, all sports were shut down. They, they halted the, uh, the end of or the beginning. Uh, they delayed the beginning of the, uh, the Major League Baseball playoffs. Mm-hmm. I think it was week, the second week of the NFL season yep. was uh, postponed. Um, they had debated on canceling it, but they, they postponed it till the end of the season. So all the week two games kind of got moved to the week, uh, week 16 games or week 17 games. Um, but yeah, like that was the thing at, at the time, like moving past the events of nine 11 and having sports being altered. Then it was like, okay, what, how do we feel about playing these sports again? And I mean, athletes had that, you know, like, how do we how do we play again how do we do this is this right do we you know at what point do we think about getting back on the field and ultimately it be it proved to be a, a really good thing for not only the city of new york but for the country too because it, like i think you've said it before right like i've never seen the country unified as much as after the events of 9-11 and a lot of that took place at sporting events you know, mm-hmm. the first, you know, Yankees and Mets games that, that happened like six days after the attacks, you know, the 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 New York Giants um, and Jets, I think were playing the Giants, I think playing at the Chiefs. And I think the Jets played the Patriots. They both won their games coming back, you know, from 9-11. And there was fanfare and patriotism and unity all around. Right. I thought I had a good memory. Man, you just rang yeah. off every game from week two. <laughs> he's got the whole 20 years yeah, ago. He's got I thought the whole I had a good September memory. schedule going on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I've seen clips of, you know, players talking about, you know, those those moments and, and those thoughts about whether or not to play. And, you know, it ended up being a, a huge support system for the country and the, the city of New York to, to come back and get on the field and bond and and unify for something like sporting events yeah you know sports has always been a thing that's brought us together you know and that the the 9-11 stuff the images of that you know like i say hair raising moments you know i keep Mm -hmm. i got about four though since you guys have been talking you know and um it yeah just the visuals right you know it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you are and whatever you know to see George Bush out there throwing the first pitch or whatever it might have been in Yankee Stadium, right? Yeah. That was that was life changing stuff at the time. You know, he threw what I mean? that pitch right down the middle. I know. That was that was the best thing he ever did in his presidency. Uh, throw that strike. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a second. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but but even that, right? And for a guy who hated Bush, right? To see that that brought us together, that that brought us that unity, you know. And um, I remember um, if I can tell you my sports story, that it was um, I think it was the first Monday Night Football game after um, after all that had happened. There had been some other games, you know, um, but the first Monday Night Football game was the Lions and Rams, and it was in the Silverdome, and I was working it. Okay, so we're at Channel Seven, and 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 we want to talk about the security and stuff, right? So we go down there, and, and it's the first game, and. It used to be you walk in, you flash a press pass, you're in, right? Boom, you're in. You're you're on the sideline, you're in the locker room, wherever you want to be. No big deal. Uh uh-uh. uh. Um, it was so on lockdown. It felt like you were going to a president, you know, like like it was Secret Service type stuff. We got there, we had all of our gear. 
We had to set all of our gear down and walk away from it. And then they brought in the bomb sniffing dogs, you know, for the media, right? This is, this is what they're doing just for the media. And in the bomb sniffing dogs had to check all your gear, all your bags, all your tripods. They make you turn your camera on to make sure it's not an explosive device, right? So you have to literally fire it up and make sure it wasn't a hidden bomb. And, and just the security on that was insane. Um, and then, but the game went off without a hitch, you know, it was a big deal. And, uh, it was quite, I remember it was, they were playing the Rams and it was, you know, Marshall Falk. It was that, that Warner team that, those Greatest guys, show on oh my God, can I tell you something about that team? Not nine 11 related. I've never felt so many physically gifted specimens. Like I would, my job was to shoot on their <laughs> sideline and like you usually you get in an NFL sideline or, or in a locker room and there's a bunch of fat dudes, right? And some guys that are in really great shape. But there's a lot of fat dudes, defensive line. Even their defensive linemen and offensive linemen seemed like they were all cut. I'm like, what are they doing with these guys here? They're in shape. <laughs> okay, that's just a side note. But I just remember that experience, you know, with the with the bomb sniffing dogs and the security guards Damn, and the machine yeah. guns. Yeah, it was crazy. That's the way it had to be for a while. Yeah. Um, let me see. As far as sports go back then, I can understand, you know, that they would be on lockdown for a week or two. But um, – like like yourself, Dan, I'm kind of glad that, you know, our sports kind of brought us back together. My sporting memories from back then, I can't name all the games from week two like you did, Dan, but I remember, let me see, it was the World Series. Now, I'm fast-forwarding probably, probably about a month, month and a half or whatever, because I think that series went on through, like, mid-November because uh, baseball had to resume again, and... I remember Rudy Giuliani at the time was the mayor of New York. Didn't have the issues that he has now for, for heaven's sakes. But, um, um, everything just felt, uh, being a Yankee fan. Okay. I'm kind of selfishly talking here. You know, I just, the Yankees in the world series coming after nine 11, all the police and the fire department, you know, and all the military that's at the world series and George Bush, you know, wearing a New York hat. And um, I remember the Diamondbacks, they won game one and two at home. Then the Yankees won game three. And I remember games four and five at Yankee Stadium. I remember Jeter hit a go-ahead home run. It was the Korean sidearm pitcher. I can't remember his name. Yeah. But it looked like that series was going to be over, and then New York just crawling back, crawling back, walk-off home run, go-ahead home run. And then um, game seven – it just looked like it was all storybook here, like stuff you just can't write. Game seven in Arizona, okay? Kurt Schilling was was uh, was on the bump for Arizona. And I want to say Rocket started game seven for New York. I'm not 100% on that, but I think he was. One-to-one ball game. Top of the ninth. Alfonso Soriano hit a solo home run. Storybook ending, okay? That series is over because Mariano Rivera, they, as he's trotting around the bases, they show on another screen Rivera loosening up, taking off the coat. Game over. Yep, and then when uh, when Kurt Schilling went to the dugout, when they came back from commercial, they said this was Kurt Schilling uh, during commercial. He was sitting in the dugout, his hand over his head. He looked at the screen when they showed Rivera getting up. He just did that. Because when Rivera goes in the game at that time, the game is over. Nine cut fastballs. Automatic. Nine yeah. out of ten times. That cut fastball every single time. You know it's coming. Can't hit it. And then the diamond. 
I lived in Arizona still. Arizona Diamond. They came back and Luis Gonzalez hit that little bloop single. And Did they have Mark Grace at that time? Yes. He left yeah. Yes, Cubs. they had Mark Grace. Yeah. Yep. And big Grace guy. Yeah, that didn't end like I wanted to end for New York. That's my sports memory. And I have another sports memory. Um, two days. No, I'll take that back. Yeah, yeah. Two days after the planes hit. On Thursday night SmackDown, Vince McMahon, you know, went got in the middle of the ring and talked about 9-11. It's kind of heartfelt. You know, it wasn't a wrestling angle. He was just talking from the heart, talking about the terrorist attacks, talking about, you know, we're, we're not going to let them defeat us. We're all in this together. Kind of heartfelt. Got a nice ovation. So I, so I remember that. And uh, now that we're on a wrestling topic, there's a, one of my favorite divas, Zelina Vega. She wrestles now. Her father was in one of the towers. When uh, when he was killed, so, but those are my sports memories on that day. Now Pete Rose also got his broke Ty Cobb's record in 1985 on September 11th, just to have some added September 11th flavor. Pete Rose broke the record, Ty Cobb's record on September 11th, 1985. So that would be 36 years ago today. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I remember, I think that he tied it against the Cubs at Wrigley, I think. And then the next day or a couple of days later, he, he yeah, I he tied that. it. He tied it. And then, uh, the, let me see the next day in Chicago, Lee Smith was on the mound Smith. and the whole crowd got up at Wrigley thinking this could be it. Yep. He struck Lee Smith struck Pete Rose out and Wrigley's booing Lee Smith. <laughs> hey, Lee Smith was a baller back oh, in the day, yeah, by the way. Yeah, he was I mean, maybe big. not Soriano, but Soriano before Soriano for a year or two. For yeah. a year or two, not a whole career. But he was, I loved him. I loved him. <laughs> but yeah, yep, you guys are right, though, man. Sports does bring us together, man. And uh, Yeah, no, and in those moments, there were there were moments during games where, you know, that was exemplified, you know, with, you know, I can remember, like, from, from, George W. throwing out the first pitch or the the first Rangers game after uh, 9-11. They had the, you know, uh, police and fire department teams come out on the ice and, you know, they they kind of made, you know, two lines where the yeah. players come in and as they introduce. And there was one of the fired firemen that um, their captain was still lost. Like he was in the building he was missing he was part of the you know first responding group uh to 9-11 and he came out with uh his his helmet on and uh to the front of the helmet he had the, the picture a picture of his captain taped to it and the guy's like i remember seeing an interview and the guy's like i'm just gonna I'm just gonna go over and mark he's like mark messier came out and he he never wore a, a helmet like when he came out for introductions he's like mark messier doesn't have a helmet on i'm just gonna go skate over to him and uh, see if we're in my helmet. And he skates over to Mark Messier, you know, taps him on the shoulder, takes his helmet off, and, like, you know, kind of tells him in his ear, like, hey, blah, blah, blah. And Mark Messier is like, hell yeah. And he put, takes his helmet and puts the helmet on, and he's sporting this fireman's helmet with with their captain's picture on it. You know, moments like that. And I think it was a player named Joe Andruzzi. who's was a lineman for the, for the Patriots. Uh, that first game back when they were playing the Jets, um, his, they want to say his two brothers and father – we're firemen. Um, so, you know, it really hit home with him. So he comes out, you know, he's in the tunnel getting ready to be introduced, and he sees these, like, two American flags just taped to the walls, and he's like, he, he just grabs them off the walls and comes running out of the tunnel waving these American flags. And, you know, it, it's like those kind of moments that, you know, sports really helped us 
almost, you know, kind of to start the healing process, but kind of take our mind off things for us for yep. a couple hours that exactly. day during that game to come together as society and to enjoy sports. Like, you know, sports has over time and time again, been this force of unity to, you know, it's the one thing that people, whether you're debating things or whether you're rooting for your favorite team, it, it unifies a lot of people. And in those moments after a tragedy like nine 11, it, it, I couldn't have imagined that time after without sports. It would, it would, it would have, it would have been a tragedy in itself not to have sports after that, after that tragedy. Let me, I'm going to ask both you guys this. If that were to happen, what happened on September 11th, 2001, say that that never happened. If that were to happen today in 2021, what do you think life would be like for, let's say, five months, six months, or a year afterwards? Would we like? Would there be no sports? Because you know the rules are kind of different now with the mandates and all that. How would how would it be now? Do you think if something unfortunate like that were to happen in today, you know, today's world? I don't think it would be any different. I mean, it would sure would be different on social media. It would sure be you know more visible in everybody's eyes today because of social media. But the way everybody reacted and the, the way things progressed afterwards, I, 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 I can't really say I think it would, things would be any different. I think there would be that time of, okay, we're not going to play. We're going to deal with this. But then, I, I don't know. I think things would happen in a very similar way. We'd be like, oh, we got to get back to sports. And, you know, and, and I, I think things would be somewhat the same. It, it seems like to me today – with social media, like you said, if that were to happen today, I'm not sure we would all unite as Americans because because the left is going to be blaming it on the right. Now the right's going to be blaming it on the left. He caused it. Uh, President Joe Biden, it's his fault and all that. Uh, because people see that on social media all the time and they listen to all this crap. When you see it and hear it so much, some people tend to believe it. I just think there'd be a lot of unnecessary finger pointing now because of of the technology and all the you know everybody has a voice on social media now and people say the most ignorant stuff he would be blaming that group of people that group of people would be blaming that group of people i i do kind of agree with you i do see that point where especially on social media there would be a lot more backlash and more 